This is Talking Years. My name is Frank Wardinger. I first met our guest, Wayne Tucker, almost two decades ago when we were both attending Purchase College. At that time, he was playing trumpet with the likes of Surreal Amy, Matt Simons, and many others who I happened to be recording at the time. Those folks have gone on to perform on Broadway and achieve international pop and jazz fame. Since 2017, he's been releasing albums of his own compositions and songs, and he's proved himself to be a songwriter and band leader, first with the Wayne Tucker Quintet, and now with the Bad Mothers. He shared the stage with household names like Taylor Swift, Neo, and David Crosby, and jazz artists like Al Foster and Kurt Elling. As a founding member of the incredibly raucous band Brass Against, he's toured the world several times. Recently, he's amassed a following online, writing his thoughts and reflections on music and life. And we'll find out in real time, along with me, that he's converting those into an honest-to-goodness book. So between trumpet player, singer, songwriter, composer, and now author, we're going to start off by asking Wayne just which one of those feels like the most natural version of himself. I mean, obviously they're all me, but the one that feels the most natural where I don't have to think about it is songwriter. Oh, cool. Like even more than trumpet player. Really? Like I'm going to practice when we get, yeah, I'm going to practice when we get off of this call uh, because I feel like I still need to get better. <laughs> and when I songwrite, no, I'm serious. Like when I get off, I'm, I'm like, we have a four hour long gig, but I need to practice so that I can be better at the gig. Like really, I feel that in my heart. And then- as a songwriter, it's not that I don't think I can improve, but I don't even look at it in the effort to improve. I'm like, I'm just going to write a beautiful song that's going to be the soundtrack to people's lives. Yeah. And some days I just sit down and I know that in my heart, I'm just going to do that. And it usually doesn't take very long. Like, really, I could write a, I could write a really great song with words in like 30 minutes. And it's not that I could say I'm going to do that every day, yeah. but when I feel like that inspiration, I'm like, oh yeah, of course I can do that. Yeah, like the other day I, I felt inspired. And I literally, I sat down and we're not even going to try them tonight because I, I want to give it a little time to marinate in my mind. Yeah. But I wrote two new pieces. Actually, I should, it was on Saturday. Going into our last show of the week was surreal, and I was just really inspired by the. Yeah. Even I mean, I love the music, but even more than the music, I was feeling inspired just by the way that we were bonding as musicians. Yeah. Everyone that she had called was just a crazy like virtuoso, you know, and and just to hear everyone play was. I didn't. I don't find it intimidating anymore when people are incredible. I find it more inspiring, I guess. Yeah. So I just kind of found the inspiration in that, even if I was like, well, I could probably never play the thing that just came out of that person's instrument. And so I sat down and just wrote two songs very easily, you know? And I kind of know in my heart, I'm like, those two are actually going to be very good. Why don't you love me? How could you hurt me? I was a fool. But with the trumpet, I I'm still thinking about like, is the air going to flow exactly the way that I want it to? I mean, it's kind of like being an athlete or something where like, you can't promise that you're going to make every free throw that you take. And people are like, yeah, but no one's guarding you. And I'm like, yeah, I feel that way with the trumpet where it's like, you know, if someone shoots 90% from the free throw line, they're, they're excellent. And I kind of feel that way with trumpet where I'm like, wow, I want to get up to 95% or 99%. But even the greatest, like I've heard Winton make mistakes, sure. you know, and like, yeah, I didn't hear the pianist that we played with this week make a single mistake. And I heard a lot of notes from that guy, you know? So, so that's why I'm like, yeah, I just, the trumpet is just so difficult and I'm drawn to that aspect yes. of it too. But I, I kind of, songwriting is therapeutic and find it be kind of easy. And the trumpet, I'm like, it's a constant battle with a great reward on the end.
man, you, you know, I, the first instrument that I studied was the violin. Really? And so as a very little kid, I would compose like classical violin pieces. <laughs> and then when we moved when I was 11, I remember them being in a blue dresser that we had. And I remember the dresser being too heavy. We had to get rid of some stuff. And I wasn't really thinking in my like 11 year old brain, like, yeah. oh, I should probably hang on to these things. I'll really want them. And so I just kind of tossed some of those like loose, those loose compositions. So the very first thing that I really remember that I wrote was actually sophomore year at Purchase. Really? And the very first thing that I wrote, we haven't played it with my band yet, actually, but I, I've been meaning to, to bring it into the mix. And it was actually really good. The very first thing. Yeah. Like just the very first song that I wrote as, you know, as a, with an adult mind. And so, and so I realized from that moment, like that very first time I was like, oh, wow, I'm actually good at this. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm actually good at this thing. You, you know? Man, one day those, those kid scraps that you threw out, those would have been worth millions. I, I really messed up. I didn't really <laughs> think about it. Yeah. Uh, Wayne, you were talking earlier about uh, the first song that you wrote being a song that you did actually in uh, college. I wasn't a songwriter yet. That was just a tune. Yeah. Like it was kind of somewhere between jazz and hip hop. It was probably inspired by like things like, like, I don't know if you ever heard uh, Roy Hargrove, the, the trumpet yeah. player. He had a, a group called RH Factor. So definitely in that time, I listened to a lot of stuff like that. Or like Joshua Redman, Elastic Band. Yes. Um, jazz musicians were kind of branching out. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just put down the first thing that came to my mind and, I, and it worked out. And from there, I kind of got excited about it and just... That you just like clarified literally the first three questions that I have on this list, Wayne, because I was thinking like okay. you go from a track that sounds like, like the Philadelphia experiment and then you go to, gosh, I don't know, Broadway and then something that sounds like a singer songwriter backed by a jazz band. And I'm like, this is yeah. like, it's so eclectic and yet it all is you yeah, in a, in a weird way. And I, yeah. And I think there's yeah, a certain, I know what um, you mean. There's a certain like honesty to the view of your style of composition then. And then the fact that it came out of the realization that you're looking back at your, your uh, composition going, that's objectively pretty good. Let's keep doing this. That makes so much sense. Now I feel like I get that a lot better. Yeah. Remember when you said I was the love of your life Was it all just a lie? Should've known back then That you were out of your mind Now it's time to say goodbye Cause I saw it as a mystery Yeah But then I realized in that moment like it's really not that much of a mystery It's just like It's just like improvising but but you get many chances, you know? <laughs> so I just kind of left it there. Really, that's how I felt yeah. that first time. I was like, oh, this is cool. It's improvising, like, but you're just this. saving it for later and building on it. No, seriously, yeah. though. That's awesome. Because yeah. I think of the people that you were surrounded with at the time, and I don't want this to just be a name drop college re memory trip, because that's probably not fun for anybody to listen to. But at the time, like you were playing with Surreal, uh, surreal Amy Dadell, yeah. um, Matt Simons, uh, Tom Larson. Yeah. The list of people that if you then, for anybody who's listening, goes and looks up those names, you'll be like, oh, obviously <laughs> Wayne is also doing amazingly well for himself because he's surrounded by these incredibly talented songwriters, each of them. Absolutely. Virtuosos, yep. each of them. Um, and I'm only naming what one percent of the incredible people that that you've played with just when I knew you back those years. Yeah, ago. but also those were the people that were and kind of still are closest to me. Yeah, in a way, you know. And and I would just add, I would add Bill Todd into the mix. Mm. And Bill has been less of a composer over the time, but I've actually known Bill even since high school. Oh, really? And he's a he's a woodwind specialist. Um, who was subbing on many different Broadway shows. So I definitely took inspiration from the first three that you mentioned in addition to Bill. And then Anthony Thornton was the other to complete our group. And please, you're in a peaceful place. Just know that you're very strong. 
I know that I've made mistakes I hope you like this heartfelt song We met at such a different stage Still glad I got to know you If there's one thing you should know I'll always, always have, have a place for you You know I'll care for you Every part of every day You know I'm there for you Anytime I know you like to worry But everything is alright Well, and there's another name that I want to throw out there that you already hinted to, which is your brother, Miles, the sax player. Oh, yeah. Um, is he he's older, younger brother? He's older by 15 months. Oh, okay. So very close. Yeah. Because yeah. you guys, when you see you two playing together, it feels like you have like a hive mind. I, I feel that too. A, a lot of siblings do that where it's just like they, they have like this internal communication that nobody can like tap into, but you guys are like... Oh yeah, so lockstep. I would tell you that typically speaking, I kind of cultivate the music, but my brother is kind of the reason that we bounce off of each other the way that we do musically. is the one who's complimenting the thing I came up with. So I might give him a written part, but even when I give him a written part, like we're going to try a few new songs today at the show that we're playing later tonight. And only on one of the songs that I give him an actual written part, because I figured on the other two, he's going to hear something that's going to be even more satisfying than what I might tell him to do. And the other thing I just, I heard it so strongly that I felt I should give it to him, but he also might hear something slightly different. Yeah. And I just trust him. I just trust him to find something that works. Yeah. My brother and I playing together has always been like such a special experience. And so watching you guys, I don't know if other people relate to this, but it's a um, visceral, like I can experience by proxy, like this sibling joy and yes. celebration, you know, and it's, it's just so fun. It's so fun to hear and watch. Yeah, I I do. I know just what you mean. Yeah. I, I might feel like a really great musical bond with other saxophone players and other musicians, but it's it is different to play with my brother than anybody else. Yeah. There's nobody who it feels the same or I feel equally connected to. Even people like Surreal who I'm like, wow, I can almost read her mind and she can almost read mine. Yeah. You know? And we we've developed a great musical bond and have a shared musical taste even there there's something that makes my brother even closer you know yeah some would call it genetics some would call it the passage of time um but <laughs> either i think way. it's both I mean, I think the genetic thing actually really helps in terms of how we match the timbre of sound. So, like, if he was the one on the call right now, I mean, you you would hear that there's a similarity in our voices. So, just that, that shape, when it goes to play a wind instrument, that shape helps to create a similar timbre as well. And that's why we can blend in a way that, say, like, Surreal and I could never, because we just have such a different shape. And we can be very aware. Yeah. As long as people are listening. Yes. Listening and, and constantly adjusting and reacting, you know? Yeah. Then I can have a great time with it.
I think about this when I record, like when we do sessions and somebody wants to double a part or harmonize with themselves, like over overdub. Yep. And very often, if they don't change their timbre enough, especially horn players, you get this like uh, uncanny awkwardness that comes out of the sound it, because it sounds like exactly it suddenly sounds like a keyboard playing the part. Right, but you guys get yeah, I hate it. You guys get like as close to that level of like tight perfection, but avoid that like uh, plasticine kind of quality. That's hard to describe. I know what you mean. God, like so I cool. truly know what you mean. There, we got yeah. I also think it's because we listen to the same music growing up from our parents. You know, uh-huh. so not only do we have the same shape of of like mouth and face and vocal chamber but we also love the same types of music i've heard you mention this in a couple interviews but you've mentioned the story about playing piano or playing keyboards in the basement oh yeah that your dad set up and tell tell me about that if, if you don't mind yeah i mean really since i can ever remember i believe i was probably two or three years old my dad would set up three keyboards one for himself, one for my brother, one for me. And he would just put on music and we'd play along. It would be everything from, say, like, Miles Davis Kind of Blue to Aretha Franklin to Sly and the Family Stone to The Grateful Dead to Led Zeppelin. Yeah. So anywhere, I don't know, anywhere that was, like, any music that's kind of coming out of the blues, actually, I would say. Yeah. And your dad is an accomplished uh, musician you guys were two or three years old so probably not good sounding yet let's just be honest yeah so you were yeah, like for sure at the time playing along meaning like literally probably like smacking the keys like like a drum set yep absolutely but that level of like support from from a parent is so cool i did see how the things that my dad loved he would put them in our hands mm. and just see how it went so like he loved basketball, he loved soccer, he loved tennis, and we just kind of checked it out. And it became a part of our daily lives, all of those things, in- including music, you know? How do you pick and choose what four songs end up on your new EP? Because it's been a couple of years oh. since you released a solo thing, and then you release a solo thing, there's four songs on it, and I want to hear yeah. all those 200 that, that got I up. get you. Man, I guess the simple answer is I typically just go with stream of consciousness in terms of the creation of it. Oh, cool. So I might compose a lot, and then certain songs I go, wow, I can hear myself making many layers of beautiful things mm-hmm. on this piece that I just created without anyone else's help or input. I can hear where I can create that vision. And certain other songs I go, wow, I really need Diego to lay down a groove because it's not 100% clear in my mind exactly how that groove should go or exactly how the groove, even if I have the groove in my mind, how hearing the actual drums play that groove will inspire the next part of this piece. So some things I can kind of just see an ending already, like a finished product from the beginning. And some other things I kind of feel like I can hear the live band playing it, but I don't necessarily hear the recorded version yet. And I let the live Mm -hmm. interactions spur me into what could be the recorded vision of that. When you're by my side And so for a lot of that stuff, like we've recorded it with the full band all together live. So we have another 10 track album that's fully uh, like recorded. We just need to mix it. The way that you make me feel it's like no other love I've had. So I actually intend to put that out in the fall with a, with a publicist and like actual press. This other stuff was mostly made at home. Um, the drums and the piano we recorded in a studio later after we had already recorded some drums and piano at home. And we're like, yeah, those things really need the, the, extra, the extra quality to them.
So I didn't realize that that was self-produced. This last one was uh, was Wake Up and See the Sun self-produced. No, that was made at Systems Two in South Brooklyn. Okay, and that was made with the help of my friend Dev Avidon who is a great sound engineer, but he also designs microphones and speakers. He's got a company oh. called Ex Machina that you would definitely want to. If you're in Brooklyn, you definitely want to visit their warehouse. Like it's, it's an insane, cool. it's an insane place. And I'd say the most insane part of it actually that you guys will really appreciate is they have an N echoic chamber in their warehouse. Oh, sweet. Yeah. I, have you ever been inside of one of those? Yeah. I, no, I mean, those spaces are incredible because they do a lot of audio research in them, but the but the ability to then uh, use it for development of gear exactly. is incredible. Um, the thing that always blows my mind in those spaces, I don't know if you had the same experience, um, it really makes you aware of kind of how loud your body is, oh, yeah. but also how loud even a quiet room is. Because when it all goes away, it's like, it's so wild. Wow, I can hear my joints. I've never existed in a space like that ever yeah. besides that. So it really, it's a unique feeling that I definitely won't forget. It's like the awareness of the awareness of the fact that you're mechanical is something that I don't think the human brain is ready yeah. to handle. Oh, I'm a machine. Yeah. Huh? Uh, that's going to take a second. I know. Back. I know. I, I feel like that might be a good moment for me to actually ask about your ears then. Yeah, sure. Because we're talking about anechoic chambers, strangest environment. For anybody who doesn't know, it just means there's no echo, there's no reverberation, and in general, no background noise. So you're basically in this space where all the sounds in the environment are below your hearing threshold, meaning you hear nothing. And it's freaky because your voice gets swallowed up into the void. Um but that makes you, I've, I've found very often when people step into these spaces, really appreciate what their ears do for them as far as awareness of the world around them, awareness of kind of spatial cues and, and connection to other people. For me, it blows my mind because I'm like, I feel like I'm floating in space suddenly and have no sense of distance. Yeah, I know that Wayne, you've been doing a lot of really interesting kind of t uh, writings and talking about kind of music philosophy and performance philosophy. Yeah. Have you ever thought about that aspect of it as like how your ears connect you to to the music that you play and to to the musicians around you on stage? Literally, I think I had one thought that was related to that in a way, and that's more like in the yeah. setup of like if you see Oscar Peterson's trio setup, Oscar actually mm -hmm. has his back to the rest of the band so that he's in the middle of the stage in a way that people like to see the piano so it looks visually pleasing yeah. his back is to the band but the only thing that matters is that he can hear the other band members not see them as the band leader i think wow. as a side person you kind of need to follow that other person so it's better for you to see them but even if you think about like what i do if i'm in the front of the stage and i'm facing forward i don't necessarily see my band members all the time but it's important for me to hear everybody even if i can't see them and then when you're playing with a combo or with your quintet, does the quintet still play or is that basically turned into the bad mothers? Yeah, that's basically the bad mothers. So like tonight, the, okay. the second keyboard player, he's on tour somewhere. So it is a quintet and that there's five of us, but it's still the bad mothers. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So like when you guys are playing on stage, it's for lack of a better word, it's acoustic, right? Basically your horns are probably amplified yeah in most spaces that you're playing yeah now we use electric bass we often use electric keyboards mm -hmm. in addition to mm -hmm. piano if they have a piano but my first if they said you can only have piano or keyboard then i'm going keyboard um sure. the drummer occasionally uses an spd which happens a, a oh, little bit cool. on the album as well like the one that's going to come out yeah and then i was using some effects pedals but i just kind of brought that back maybe for the past like I kind of stopped using them in my band. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think there was a particular reason other than to say, I don't really need it. I feel like we really have like so many textures and so many ways of like yeah. expressing ourselves that I just wanted to give people the, the, the ability to just recognize the sounds and, and take them in instead of going, Whoa, what, where's that coming from? Like constantly, you know?
really, I wanted to get into what what you've been doing recently with your like. Is music philosophy even a good term for it? Yeah, I think so. What do you? I, I never really thought about it. Uh, honestly, I just I had a thought in my head, and it was something that I f- that I felt was something that other people probably yeah. feel. Typically, what what I end up seeing on social media or just in general in life is that when people are successful, they tell you about the good things that happened and why they were successful in a good mm-hmm. way. And the people who are unsuccessful complain about things and say that the things that, you know, give reasons why it wasn't fair yeah. to them or something, you know? And I was like, yeah, we all go through struggles internally, both people who are successful and unsuccessful. Yeah. Not that it has to only fall into one or the other, because sometimes you're successful and sometimes mm-hmm. you're not, but not that you are a successful person or not, but I think yeah. you get what I'm saying, where it was like, okay, a lot of people who don't do well, they go, okay, the music industry sucks and here's why. And the people who do well, they're just showing you like their most killing takes on the most amazing things that they right. do, you know? And I thought to myself, I think it would actually be really helpful for people if they just, I had this thought and I was like, yeah, I know that a lot of people see me as being a successful musician and I'm in the position that the people I looked up to uh, when we were in college are, yeah. were in. I'm doing the same gigs, playing like the same level of same level of gigs, even sometimes with the same yeah. people. Like so for example, I used to go see the Roy Hargrove big band oh, in sure. college and now I play in the band. <laughs> right? And it's like I remember seeing those people and thinking, Oh, your lives are perfect, you're doing great, you're happy, you're successful, or like, you know, I used to go to see people play at Birdland and you know, for the past like twelve years or so. 14 years, whatever it is, I've been playing there regularly. And I realized that my mentality didn't change. Mm. The things that, um, the the fears that I had didn't change. The ambition and curiosity that I have didn't change. You know, just like nothing really changed inside. And so I figured like I should just share some of the feelings that I have. This is something that I feel that other people are not going to think I yeah. feel because they see me and they think, oh, he's just really good at that and it's really easy for him. Yeah, and I think the thing that really resonated with me when I was reading those, and you keep putting these out, which is very generous of you really, is that this is something I've noticed about sharing the stage with other humans. This is something I've noticed about when yes. you sit down to write a song and you realize that actually you're writing a completely different song. You know, these kind of moments that are so relatable. I almost want you to like compile them into like a memoir or something because it's so um, clearly spoken, which is a hard task for anybody to take like a big concept like that and then to to say it in a way that I think honestly, people who have never even played music before would probably go like, that relates to me. That's what I want. With all of them, I try to edit them in a way that that's how it comes across. I want it to be relatable to musicians. I don't want it to be a thing where you go, ah, well, I'm a musician, so of course I know that. Yeah. I don't want it to be a thing where you go, well, I'm not a musician or I'm not an artist, so it doesn't have importance to me. I want it to be like, okay, through the lens of music, I've experienced this and had this thought towards it. Um, Man, actually, I'm writing a book, 100 Musical Thoughts, just for this reason. Yep. A bunch of people reached out and I was like, I should just do it. Because they're sitting there. So now I have the list of 100. I've done two drafts. That's awesome. I edited the first draft. And so I'm on the second draft. I've sent that to a few friends. That's awesome. So basically, there'll be one thought per page. That's the best. What? That's what it is. I, I did not know you were doing that. And I'm so, I'm like yeah. so happy right now because that's that was my first and last thought when I, whenever I read one of those, I just go, this needs to be collected somewhere. It needs to be on my coffee table because they're so, they're so good. That's what it's going to be. It. It's a coffee table. I'm so happy when the world. So you could out. go, I need some inspiration today. And you could turn to any single yeah. one of them. Like you don't have to go in order, but you could go in I order. I love that so much. Oh uh, man. That's so yeah. good. I, um, I'm going to throw out the rest of this interview. No, there, I have other things that I want to ask you about, <laughs> but that's a huge plug for in the future. Um, and if you're not following Wayne, I've never done this before, but I'm going to say follow Wayne on socials. I feel like such a old person who doesn't understand what that means really, but um, 
because it's worth it. It's great. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, I, I, this might then kind of branch off from that, but I've heard you talk about, um, not necessarily in those musical thoughts, but I've heard you talk about this idea of uh, people who have the ear or a good or a good ear. Yeah. But that was a conversation that we would always have of just like, this person's got such a good ear. Not meaning they're hearing. Yeah. You know, because now I'm in audiology world and a good ear means a completely different thing. But I'm curious if you can talk about like what, <laughs> like when you see somebody who's got like the ear and really, really, really listens well, like what does that mean to you as, as a mm-hmm. player? Uh, that means that you're able to hear every single sound that people create and you could recreate it yourself mm-hmm. in an instant because you know what it is. You're not guessing. So, for example, I think the first step to that is knowing the chords. When you hear someone play a chord, like a lot of people would think like, oh, my cousin has such a good ear, she can sing, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's like, to me, I think probably 85% of human beings could hear someone sing a song and sing, you know, if it was simple, sing it back. Yeah. Um, But maybe only 2% could actually hear the chords. Mm Mm-hmm. And and actually know what chord it was like. Okay, that was a B flat thirteen, mm-hmm. with a sharp eleven and a sharp nine in it, and not go. Oh, I heard a note that I could play over it. Like, no, like you really, you really know what you know what chord they played because. And, and to be honest with you, I don't know anyone who can hear like that who didn't study it and play a chordal instrument, either guitar or piano. Or vibraphone. So then, then when you hear like, like really, I don't know a single yeah. person. And then when you hear like that, when you're playing and you, and the piano player goes off in a different direction and really stretches, and you go, "I'm following them." Mm-hmm. Are you thinking with your trumpet brain, or are you thinking with your piano brain? How are you following them? My piano brain. That's so cool. I'm thinking with my piano brain, absolutely. Trumpet is such a body instrument. You're putting your your breath into yeah. it, and you're you're playing it tactilely. And I don't know if everybody realizes that like, people who tuning every note with your lips and your fingers. Yes. A lot of people when they watch a trumpet player play, they think this note is this, this note is this, and it's just in tune every right. single one. But it's not. Right. It's not like that at all. It's so hard. So you're able to kind of go split brain and, and be be the intuitive body performer on the trumpet while you're, would you even think of it as like analytical listening? Like, is that what you're doing? Yeah, I, I would. I, I'm definitely thinking analytically. Everything that you hear has a purpose and a function. Like a C7 chord means one thing in one song and another thing in another song like for example i could say c7 and you go well what does that mean it, it might be the one chord it might make you feel at home on a blues mm-hmm. song but it just might be the end of a beethoven sonata the penultimate You're chord of a beethoven yeah. sonata you know it's not gonna be the last chord it's leading to somewhere yeah. else the function is also important in understanding it but just in the absence of 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 anything having context like i could hear someone play a chord and know what it was you know because i spent so much time at the piano just copying things Mm -hmm. and then you and then you realize like okay i've heard that a million times like now i know like i'm i'm certain of it i'm not guessing 
It's kind of like hearing someone speak another language. And at first, like if you don't know the language, you go, oh, I heard a sound like that I can kind of almost imitate, yeah. but I'm not 100% sure of the exact enunciation of it all. Yeah. And then you start to be able to enunciate it in your own mind. And then you get to allow your tongue to actually have it do work and like and learn how to actually pronounce it for yourself and then later you might learn based on context clues the meaning of the thing but they're all actually important if you're going to speak the language you have to be able to hear and separate the sounds you have to be able to create the sounds and you have to be able to understand why and how it works and they all really truly go together they're not separated from one another you know what i mean so if i'm the key of f and i see a c7 i know it's the five mm -hmm. chord and i know how that is going to make me feel yeah. i know how the five chord makes me feel in the key of f mm -hmm. especially you know then you give it the context of say it's slow medium fast or this type of beat mm -hmm. i've because i've been through it so many times okay a c7 on a slow classical piece will feel this way and a C7 yeah. on an up-tempo, you know, country blues will feel this way. Mm -hmm. And I've just heard both of them so many times that in both cases, when I hear the C7, I recognize it as such, but also I recognize the function of it and the feeling that's created by it. And so if I want that same feeling, I know when I sit down at the piano, I can just do that. I have to say that the way that you just related it back to language and the development of speech and understanding is like the most clear way that I've had ever heard that explained, which again, okay. I have to plug your future book. If you agree, Great. go buy Wayne's book because it's going to be one of my thoughts. I'm going to make a little note. Damn it, it's so good. And like like it's like it's like language, yeah. I've heard people say it's it's strange that our ability to to hear notes isn't the same way as our ability to see color. Like you look at a color and say that's red, that's blue, that's a reddish orange, but you don't hear yeah. an F in in the wild in out of context and go, somebody played an F. Like most of us don't have perfect pitch. The funny thing is, I, yeah, I do. I have a hard time, like, I, I feel the same way with sound as I do with color. And my guess is because I started them at about the same age. Yes. Yeah. That, that synergy that like. Like exactly yeah. where they say, is this like, what color is this? And the little kid says, that's green, you know? Yeah. Oh, we're so proud it's of just you. Just naming a thing. But no one. Yeah, right. Exactly. You're naming the thing that you heard. Yeah. Whereas like if you hold an apple in front of an adult's face and you say, what's this? And they go, it's an apple. No one's like, oh my God, that's unbelievable. How did you do yeah. it? Like, I think it's because, because most people don't have that experience that I had of, of identifying those sounds. Yeah. But I've been identifying those sounds by finding them on the piano mm -hmm. from the very beginning. Yep. And then, and then after it was individual notes, it was chords. Yeah, I remember being five and trying to figure out the chords to songs. You know, yeah. like where it's like, okay, do I really like hear? Is that really the thing that I that I think I hear in that piece that satisfies me in that way? Yeah, you know. So I really do feel that and way. It gets to something that you know, from an audiology perspective, I'm often talking to audiologists about how to better understand the musician that comes in and that they see because, you know, that person in front of you, one, they're a regular patient and a regular person, but two, they think about sound differently than you do. Would you have any kind of advice for people like me who have to help then any musician with their ears, kind of how to better understand the musical mind, the, the musical person? I guess personally, I'm grateful that I grew up in an era where when you play loud shows, you use in-ear monitors. So you mentioned Brass Against, yeah. like I've done a bunch of gigs, whether it's with Brass Against or like some like touring pop gigs, mm -hmm. that the stage volume is so loud that you use in-ear monitors. Yeah. I saw in my father, I saw his hearing go, you know, I saw that it got worse over the course of his lifetime. Mm -hmm. And he grew up in an era where the speakers were the size of human beings. <laughs> And the volume that they played at was equivalent to that. Like, seriously, yeah. I remember picking up these speakers mm -hmm. with him. Like, like when, when it was time for him to go play at a bar, like, we're literally bringing two speakers that are the size of more us. More is more. That was the age. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? So, like, in terms of, like, for me, I'm just grateful that I, I 
still feel that my hearing is intact and I don't notice it more difficult mm -hmm. to hear things necessarily. Yeah. I'm usually the person who goes, you guys don't hear that sound. Yeah. Like you don't hear that, that irritating thing in the track or you don't hear that sound in real life. That's like kind of getting to me or that sound that mm -hmm. like, Oh, that person's calling us or your phone is ringing in another room or something. You know what I mean? I feel like I'm the person noticing the things. And I guess as a musician, I'd rather my eyesight go than my hearing. in-air monitors and we're playing i've noticed that one thing that i really need to help me understand the eq is a touch of reverb in the ears mm -hmm. without that little hint of reverb actually in the ears not just in the mm -hmm. house i might ask for less mids until i realize like oh when i get a little bit of reverb in there yeah. it helps me hear those details a little bit more well, it gives you the space back because you lose that sense of space and where you are yep. it kind of goes back to the anechoic chamber like it I was just thinking about yeah. that. Yeah, and I, so many musicians, when we first get them on in-ears, have that experience of like, well, I can't do this because now I'm too blocked off or I feel like I'm I'm isolated. I don't know why I get gruff when I pretend to be that person. but Because um, that person's usually pretty gruff when they're like, kind of like, I don't want to do this. But I always remind them, you know, how many thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of hours did you spend getting your ears to a point where you can hear through an ensemble and understand what the B3 player is doing separate from the Rhodes player, separate from the guitar player. Like you can also learn in ears and I'm not talking to Wayne now. I'm talking to that, that gruff person that I made up. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but you also mentioned, I mean, I want to circle back to brass against, but before that, yeah, you've been doing a lot of cool pop gigs. I mean, I saw you playing with Taylor Swift, shaking it off up there. You were just yeah. mentioning Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Um, yeah. I mean, these are A, A, double A list gigs. In, a, in those settings, you're feeling safe because you're wearing the monitors because you're, you're protected from that stage volume and able to hear yourself well. Right. Is there something that, because in those settings, in-ear monitors are almost a necessity now at this point? Absolutely. Like, I would be partially deaf without for sure. In the jazz setting, do you ever see that being, what's the barrier there? Because there's a very important barrier that I, I want people to understand that, that in-ear monitors may not be the right solution for jazz settings. Like, can you explain that more? Yeah. I guess, I guess for me personally, I, 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 okay. So we wear the in-ear monitors both to protect our ears, but also to hear, to be able to hear each other and our own sound on stage. Yeah. So as a trumpet player, I can feel what notes are coming out of my horn, but it, I find it greatly helpful to to also hear them. I, I do a gig at a burlesque show, actually, where we play. It's kind of like being in a wedding band, but with a more artistic vibe. Like the tunes will be kind of wedding band style tunes. Yeah. And they have different nights. Like, so there might be disco night or funk night or soul night or something like mm -hmm. that, right? And the drummers often play very loud there. And I'm right next to the drums there, like really close. So I usually just put my in-ear monitors in, even though I don't plug them into anything. Oh, yeah. And so I'm kind of just going, I'm kind of going by the feel more than the sound at that gig often because of that. And I've noticed that it's an interesting way for me to navigate it because I can kind of feel in my face, mm -hmm. what am I doing well or not doing well? And when you play trumpet, you should keep your face very still. So if I'm less concerned about the sound it makes my face still and then the sound is good because huh. I'm doing the right thing. Yeah. So I can tr start to kind of trust, right? So I've been in the place where you go, okay, I just want to protect my ears and then I learn another skill just through doing that. Or there's a thing of like, okay, I want the ears in so that I can hear myself mm -hmm. amongst the masses of the audience of thousands of people. I mm -hmm. won't hear a note that I play and then I'm going to overplay and my face isn't going to feel good and the sound is going to be too spread. Yeah instead of very full and warm, you know? And so I think we can use the the ears in, in multiple ways in terms of like, it can be a way to protect us or enhance our musicianship. I don't personally love to improvise with them in, mm -hmm. 
because probably I still haven't put in the same amount of hours as I do without, you know, yeah. where I just don't feel quite, I feel comfortable to play my parts with people. Yeah. And I do improvise a couple times in a, like we do a one and a half hour show with Brass Against and I usually take two solos yeah. at the show, you know? I never feel quite as good as I feel soloing, say like with my band or with Surreal or yeah. something without ears in. Yeah. I, I think it's because of, I'm inspired by the, not just the like the, the notes and rhythms, but the sounds. It's like my keyboard yeah. players, they're serious keyboard players. They're not piano players who play the keyboard because I asked them to bring a keyboard to a gig. Mm -hmm. Like they really know the sounds of the keyboard. Like they really have things worked right. out. Because we were just talking about the B3. Yeah. So like when you hear yeah. the, the little intricacies that Todd Caldwell brought to that and brings to that, or like when you hear the two guys I have now, Addison Fry and David Leinard, just the creation of of the sounds that they get or the warmth of the sound that my bass player gets or the beautiful sound that Diego gets from the drums or the timbre of my brother's saxophone. When I'm missing that, I don't feel quite as inspired. You know, totally. I just don't feel quite as inspired musically and that's fine if I'm reading something, but I really feel I need the inspiration if I'm improvising. And arguably you're up on a pop stage. There's a singer 90 feet away from you on the catwalk in the middle of the audience. Exactly. The, the speakers are all facing the wrong direction. Everything just sounds, Yeah. it just sounds God awful when you're on stage because it's not set up to feel right on stage, but you're at the Birdland with Surreal being like people would, and people do, uh, would pay their left foot. To, to be within five feet of those incredible musicians, feeling that feeling the strings off that bass, feeling that that subtle yep. ride cymbal, being you know inches away from you while you play like a mute solo, that's the best seat in the house. So in ears in that setting, arguably it's not even necessary from like a level perspective either. Right. Those those sessions do get loud. I know, but it's not the same as a rock concert. No, not, not yeah. at all. We literally probably play 10 times louder with Brass Against. just a dude named brad hammonds who is a guitar player but he's also an entrepreneur and he just had an idea when trump was elected to cover some rage against the machine yeah. and he was thinking okay what could cover that and at first he's like should it be like a string like an orchestra you know and then a trumpet player who he was working with was like man i think it should be brass instruments because it's really like bold yeah. you know and, and he was like, oh, that's a great idea. And so he called me to play on the very first video session awesome. of the... Yeah, and that's basically how it was born. I had heard Rage, Rage Against the Machine before. I don't think I ever listened to an album of theirs, for example. But I knew some of the songs. Like, they're part of our childhood in a way, you know? But... At the same time, I wasn't like a rage against the machine head growing up. Yeah. But but yeah, I kind of fell in love with it pretty quickly. It it um it really tickles so many things in my heart. I think the the rawness of the horns, like the humanity that is yeah. being literally blown out through the horns, uh yes. makes the music that somehow they're able to make with electric instruments too. Like that's one of the weird, unique things about Rage Against the Machine is that when you listen to it, it doesn't sound rigid and uh, rudimented. It sounds raw and free. And there's this like, it's oh, a very. tight band, but it's incredibly like on the edge of crashing the whole time. And that's the same like uh, recklessness that you guys get with the horn section, you know? Absolutely. Sometimes yeah. those groups feel very music school. 
when you get a bunch of yeah, I know what you mean. instruments together and tell them to play a part. I know what you mean. But the way that you guys do brass against, it's just, it, it maintains that incredible energy and almost amplifies it. Yeah. Actually, it does amplify it. Were you drawn to that project because of just like, this makes sense in this time? I mean, was that also an outlet for you to do something very different stylistically? I've been a freelance musician doing different gigs every day yeah. uh, for many years. And I feel like as time's going on, I want to actually do less random stuff because when you go to see mm -hmm. your, your heroes play, you typically aren't seeing them play with their 10th band of the, of the week. Sure. You're seeing them do something that they know very well at the highest level they can do it. And that's why you love to go see them because you know it's going to be awesome because yep. they know it really well. So I wouldn't actually say I was even seeking that. For me, I just knew the guy who was the band leader. Um, I knew that he always got great musicians. He always treated us well in terms of pay and in terms of just hospitality. And, you know, I know that if I go there, I'm going to have a good time, play with great musicians and make a good living. Yeah. So to me, that was enough for me to tell him yes for the first thing, you know. And we just had a, such a great time together at that first thing. I could see the potential in it. Yeah. And that's not really why I would, I, if I didn't like the music, but I saw the potential in it, I wouldn't necessarily do it, you know? Sure, 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 sure. But I just, I saw all those things kind of working together. I was like, okay, I can see where this is a good thing for society. I can see, you know, where this would be fulfilling to me and where I'm not necessarily the best at this thing yet. I was more of a, yeah, like I think it's taught me how to play loud and how to play right on the edge of like sounding good and sounding crazy. And I think that's a great thing to bring. Yeah. I always had fear of that. Like the physical side of the trumpet's always been more difficult to me than like the mental side, I guess. Sure. And so just to let go and go, okay, I'm going to have to crush some really high notes in a very loud, raucous way. Mm -hmm. Like, is that something I can learn how to do? And just by doing it, I've gotten much better at it. I'm still practicing that that side of things for sure you know but it's really helped me to grow a lot of them already were friends of mine but not necessarily mm -hmm. like some of my closest friends but we've really bonded through so many tours and that's awesome yeah i can't take credit for like oh i i saw that it, there was a need in society for this or what like i for me i was just part of the wave you know when i happened to be an original and like regular touring member of the band who contributes greatly to it these days you yeah. know but in terms of creation of it, I just, I got to give it up to the, to the guy who created it, Brad Hammonds, really. When I think about you now, like my view of when you were playing in, in college, and i sorry to keep bringing it back to this, but it was just like, there is a damn good trumpet player. That guy, like just virtuoso at the age of whatever we knew each other. And now I hear the new EP. Yeah. It's so vulnerable and raw and like your vocal performance is so standing out there to be presented yeah. it just has this quality of like um i guess maturity is the right word i wish it wasn't but just honesty i actually know where that came yeah. from actually my brother told me to read a book called daring greatly by brene brown and i read that book and it talks about the emotion of vulnerability and how we often see it as a negative thing but it's a very positive thing it is and um that was the step to me finding my own voice musically i believe it's not something to be afraid of. Like, that was it. But if I hear, like, my mom has some recordings from when I was 14 years old. 
I sound like the same trumpet player. Like you could, <laughs> I am better at the trumpet, but you would recognize me. If yeah. you heard that, you'd go, yo, that's, that's you. Yeah. Like it's very clear, like so obviously clear that that's me. So from the beginning, I already had my own sound, just like we do as human beings, you know? I just think that book helped me to feel free to express that all the time instead of just when I felt safe. Why did I never take the time? Oh, tell me why I never even said goodbye. How can we meet again once more? Please tell me how can I go on living all my life? Knowing you're gone when all you are is in my mind. This question is kind of a funky question because it's so simple. So take this however you want to take this word, but why loud? Why do we care about loudness? Why, why loud? I think that when something's loud, okay, I'll, 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 I'll tell you my first thought is I was watching Arturo Sandoval practice mm. on, on his Instagram. He's one of the greatest trumpet players in the world. And he's someone I've been listening to since I was 14 when I really got into the trumpet. Mm -hmm. Um, and he was practicing and he goes, this is piano. Like this is quiet. And he plays. And I thought to myself, that's loud. And then he goes, this is mezzo piano, medium quiet. And he plays to go, wow, it's really loud. I wouldn't be able to play louder than that. And then he says, this is mezzo forte. And it was louder than I can play. And then he said, this is forte. And it was way louder than I can play. And he's like, yeah, that's because when you play your horn, even the softest things are going to be loud when you're really good because it resonates so much. You know, and so to me, I, I would say like, that's why, because if you're speaking and you have a beautiful speaking or singing voice, it's automatically going to be resonant mm. and resonant, resonant is loud. that resonate are loud they're louder than things that don't resonate that's cool i love and it's that. a beautiful type of loud so it doesn't feel bad to mm -hmm. us but that to me I, I play louder than i did in college and i still think i'm a fairly like soft trumpet mm -hmm. player compared to some other people you know but i'm always searching for the most beautiful sound mm -hmm. and the most beautiful rich sound has a lot of vibrations in mm -hmm. it and those those are loud Since we got time, let me ask you the one more question then, um, which is another question yeah. that I, I ask a lot of patients. I ask this question when I work with people who aren't understanding kind of how important their hearing is. So it's, it's like a second grade level question. What's your favorite sound? I know it sounds so crazy to say, but it's it's a beautiful trumpet sound. Yeah. Like my first thought was I heard my high school teacher playing the trumpet, oh. like my high school trumpet teacher, you know? He was incredible. He played in the New York Philharmonic, but he wanted to live in Syracuse where I'm from. So he was the principal trumpet player in that orchestra there after being in the New York Phil. And when he would play one note, I would be smiling like 
every single time. I couldn't help it. When I came to purchase and I heard Roy Hargrove live, it sent chills through me every single time. I've heard Wynton Marcellus in high school and and in college and after college and every single time. I like I can it brings me back to that spot. So it's addictive, isn't it? Like a really good trumpet sound. Because it sounds like a voice. Exactly. That's the thing about the trumpet that I love. It sounds like one of the most beautiful singing voices. That's that's what gets me. So right at the beginning of COVID, you and the band went kind of viral online because of some outside busking that you were doing. Could you tell me about where you were doing that and how that got started? So it's called Grand Army Plaza yeah. and there's like a big monument, Revolutionary War statue there. And that is the entrance of, it's like the main entrance of Prospect yeah. Park, the biggest park in Brooklyn and second biggest park in New York City. Really, my drummer was the one who said, hey, let's go play music in the park. I... I had not played outside like busking in probably, I think it it had been 10 years since I went outside and busked. I only did that because my drummer was begging me to. I was totally happy just making music at my house and teaching online and stuff. But he was the one who said, man, we need to play music outside. Then after the first day of doing that, we saw how, first of all, we saw how bad we sounded (laughs) and that we needed to do that in order to get better. But also, we just saw how happy it made people. Yeah. And so we we just had to get right back to it. And so it was that first day was me, my drummer, and my bassist. And the second day was with my brother. And he is the one who chose the spot that we used to go to. And that's really what made us. It was both the music and our, and our vibe, but it was also the spot. It was just the most yeah. visible spot with the most foot traffic rather than the most beautiful spot. And the time, because you you touched on it. This was a time where people just needed to smile. Um, yeah. Know, right during the, t- the beginning of the pandemic. Just kind of like what you did with uh, Brass Against. I mean, again, you can't take credit exactly. for the choice. But like this time needs this art. This time needs this music. And you you were able to bring that to, to Prospect Park, which is incredible. You're bringing me to another musical thought. (laughs) For the listener, he's getting his pencil out and writing it down on a piece of paper. (laughs) Oh yeah, no, like I really am, just to be to be ready because after this, I'm gonna extrapolate and I'll have two of them for you tomorrow, man. And you'll know that you were part of this. This is so good. You've you've just witnessed uh, some kind of history being made. Look, Wayne, we could do this forever. I appreciate your. I've appreciated your playing now i appreciate your songs so much i appreciate your arrangements your composing thank you i appreciate your thoughts on music and life and i'm sure everybody will love that who's who's able to once it that comes out as a book and i appreciate your time giving this to this to this project of course thank you so much yeah thank you for sure frank this was amazing and i look forward to seeing uh, what comes of this for sure Talking Ears is a production of Earmark Hearing Conservation. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode and hearing wellness in general. The theme music is by Scott Hallam. You can find more of his music at audiodowsing.com. The show is produced by Juan Vazquez, Mary Kim, and myself, Frank Wojcik. Thanks for listening.